Welcome back to the Future Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Elser. This month, two postdocs from our research network will be sharing with us a story from Baltimore about on-the-ground experiences to the recent Memorial Day flooding event and the impacts of that flood on nearby communities. This is a really special episode in that we actually get to hear and learn from a leader in that local community, Pastor Michael Martin. Without further ado, I'll hand things over. Enjoy. My name is Marissa Matzler, and I'm joined by Bernice Rosenschweig, and we are postdoctoral researchers on the Urex project. This episode is the Future City Podcast's first City Dispatch episode. The City Dispatch episodes are going to be zooming in on a single city in our network to highlight some of the current events that are going on on the ground in each city and how they overlap with our research. The podcast team decided that these city dispatches would be a good way to highlight some of the unique challenges and some of the unique opportunities that exist in each of our nine network cities uh, when it comes to thinking about extreme events and resilience. So today we're going to be on the ground in Baltimore. So first, let's start off with a little history about Baltimore. So I think that nationally, Baltimore tends to have a kind of a bad reputation. Um, I know, at least for myself, coming from Oregon, a lot of the things that I heard about the city before I came here uh, was mostly about social unrest, economic disinvestment, corruption. Um, but walking around the city, as, as I have been for the past few years working there, um, I've seen that there are really a number of unique and tight, tight-knit neighborhoods, really great social interactions happening, beautiful parks and streams. And so to me, Baltimore represents a lot of growth and promise. It's interesting to note that po- uh, Baltimore's population has decreased uh, quite a bit since its industrial heyday. So in 1950, the city uh, was just shy of a million people, and that made it the seventh largest city in the U.S. actually at that time. Uh, But since then, currently, we're looking at a population of about 600,000 people. Uh, What happened in in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, we had a lot of white flight from the city and a a hollowing out of the downtown area. And that has changed quite a bit over time as things have have grown back. The the inner harbor and downtown has really been uh, revitalized in, in recent years. So this means that there's actually a lot of vacant lots in the city. Um, As you're walking around in different neighborhoods, you'll you'll notice uh, row homes that have potentially trees growing out of them from uh, falling into disrepair. And there are other row homes that are attempting to hold on. The residents are attempting to hold on to their space um, while other things crumble around them. Uh, So this is a very interesting, it's not a unique problem. There are other uh, cities that are experiencing this degrowth and and vacant lots, but it's it's an interesting turning point for the city. So there is the potential to reimagine these lots, and this is one of the top priorities for the city as well as for many of the residents, as you can imagine. This is interesting from a research perspective because you can see a social ecological uh, system at work. So there is a lot of nature that's coming back into these abandoned lots. Also, a lot of different social interactions. So again, crime and safety become uh, an issue when you have not a lot of eyes on the street, so to speak. And so this is a new social ecological relationship that can be changed. You know, what is going to happen to these vacant lots in the future? Are they going to be redeveloped as apartments or luxury condos, affordable housing, potentially green space? And so Bernice and I, as we're looking at the city of Baltimore, we think about these spaces and others and how water is flowing around in all of these areas. So all of the things that I'm mentioning to you here uh, are things that I've noticed about and learned about um, the city of Baltimore uh, in trying to understand 
water and policy and extreme events as they happen uh, within the city. Another really important thing to mention about Baltimore um, is the racial makeup of the, of the city. It really, we can't go without uh, discussing race in Baltimore. Um, and there is a very strong effect and influence even today of the historic legacy of redlining within the city. So one of the things I uh, learned about when I came to Baltimore was colloquially the, the reference to the white L and the black butterfly in Baltimore. So along the center of the city, there's a lot of, of redevelopment and along the waterfront uh, is where a lot where you find the Caucasian population most generally and fanning out in East and West Baltimore to either side. Again, the African-American population is primarily uh, dominant in these regions. And so this is an interesting thing to think about when we think about reinvestment in vacant lots, when we think about reimagining the city to be able to address extreme events um, and to become more resilient. So these are some of the things that, again, that Bernice and I think about in our research in Baltimore and that we wanted to talk to you a bit more about today. Uh, in particular, thinking a lot about water, how it moves around the city, and how this influences both the social and the ecological systems that are in place in Baltimore. Hey, so this is Bernice, and before we really get into our discussion about water in Baltimore, I just want to give some background on the physical setting of the Baltimore metropolitan region. So the city of Baltimore is actually located along what we call the Atlantic Seaboard Fall Line. That's where the Piedmont province, or the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, transition into the coastal plain, or the low-lying flat area that is characteristic of, say, the Baltimore Inner Harbor. And between those two provinces, you have a really steep slope. And that's what creates a lot of Baltimore's most important natural features. Um, Baltimore is characterized by having flash-flowing streams and waterfalls, which are really important amenities for the people that live in the city of Baltimore. But it also contributes to the city of Baltimore's issues with flash flooding. So, for example, you may have seen videos of the flash flooding that happened over Memorial Day weekend of this year, 2018, in Ellicott City, Maryland. Ellicott City is a suburb located just west of the city of Baltimore. And if you go online, there's a lot of video on YouTube. It was an international news story where there was horrific flash flooding. You can see videos where the water just rises incredibly quickly, sweeping cars down the roads into building. The water itself reached the second story of the historic buildings in the town, and it caused catastrophic damage. Um, to make matters worse, this was actually the second catastrophic flash flood in Ellicott City in two years. There was another one in the summer of 2016. So Marissa and I happened to be in the Baltimore area about two weeks after the Memorial Day weekend flood so that we could attend the Eurex Scenarios development workshops. We heard that there had been some flooding impacts in the city of Baltimore and the local news, and we decided that it would be interesting to drive to the addresses that we heard had been impacted to see how flooding had affected those communities. So we actually couldn't access the street that had been most severely affected, Frederick Avenue, but we drove as close as we could and then parked and walked down the hill. Um, just to give you an idea about the community that was affected, it's about as far from, I think, the prevailing stereotype of Baltimore as you can imagine. Um, it's very different from what you might see, for example, on a show like The Wire. This is a really nice neighborhood with a lot of trees and grass and flowers and well-maintained houses. 
Marissa and I happened to be there on the day of the elementary school graduation. So it was a really idyllic setting with a lot of families and children that were celebrating the graduation. But we, as we walked down the hill and closer to the streets that had been affected by the flood, we began to see how severely that the community was impacted. The main road, Frederick Avenue, was not only closed, it was actually in many places inaccessible because it had been severely scoured away and undercut by the flooding itself. We walked past a townhouse development where it seemed like the ground level floor and the first floors had been completely flooded out. And even though it was two weeks later, there were workmen actively gutting the apartment and unfortunately taking people's ruined belongings and component of the apartment and dumping them into these collection dumpsters that they had lying on the street. We didn't want to disturb the workmen, but we wanted to find out more about how the community had been affected. So we visited the Still Meadow Evangelical Church, which we had heard was open as an emergency response center for the event. At the church, we were introduced to Pastor Michael S. Martin, who was the pastor for the church and was coordinating relief efforts for the community. Pastor Michael was still really busy with emergency relief work, but he really wanted to tell us more about what had happened to his community. So he found a few minutes to actually drive us down to the stream that had been primarily responsible for the flooding that the community experienced. When we visited the stream, it was a really tiny trickle of water flowing through a very pretty gorge located on the church's property. But here's Pastor Michael's description of the flooding that his community experienced from the stream during the Memorial Day weekend of 2018. Imagine water all the way up there, water all the way up, all the way up here. What are we, um, 12, 13 feet from from the water down there? So it flowed up here, ran out here over the sidewalk into the street and it was measured at seven feet wow i don't know anything about how to talk about this kind of thing but how many tons of water is that so there's a there's a couple of guys um and they're first responders types on or in a boat arresting Mm. people because there was a bus right yes yes so the bus got caught up (laughs) and it's six seven feet and then they're rescuing people. And one of the guys, he was delightful the next day. He said, I've been living in Baltimore most of my life. It never ever struck me that there'd be a time that I'd be floating in a boat down Frederick Avenue. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But God bless that you were there. And so yeah. it just ran all the way down now. So that would be maybe a quarter of a mile before mm-hmm. it dissipated enough and affected a lot of basements and um, a healthy number of first floors. Pastor Michael's church has become a local response hub where people can find help and information uh, from city staff since the flood. Here he tells us about some of the things that are concerning to him about the emergency response that they have seen along Frederick Avenue. In all of this, we're here to help Ness about very competent, and I'm not being sarcastic, and very good in their jobs people mm-hmm. who are housed in our fellowship hall from 8 or so o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning to 4 or 5 or even 6 o'clock in the evening. Um, Some of these people are not getting that help. One or two things because if they come up here, maybe they're hitting the wrong person or maybe they really can't help them or figure out how to help them with their landlord or whatever else. And, And number one, number two, housing is not here on a consistent basis, if at all. And then number three, the vast majority of people are not walking because they can't get through because everything, the streets um, 
the integrity of these streets have been really concerning to the city officials. So as you can see, you can't pass through, you can't get back and forth. They've been really good about that part of it. They just don't want anything to happen. It was a sinkhole over here. So they, you know, they've blocked off everything. So I got to walk up there. And as I said to you earlier, um, this happened Sunday night. Monday is a holiday. Maybe mm-hmm. I take off Tuesday if I'm a regular working person. Mm-hmm. When's that going to go to work? Yeah, yeah. Because everything that's happening to me is going to be exacerbated if I if I stop earning an income, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or if my mm-hmm. supervisor or manager would have given mad at me. So they back to work. That means they're not getting off till four or five o'clock, six o'clock. They're home, seven o'clock, they're home. They, they're going to muck out a little bit. They're going to play around with this stuff a little bit. They're going to try to be undepressed. Uh, for 30 minutes, they're going to drink a little mm-hmm. glass of wine um, out of this cup that they're trying to keep clean because they don't have any hot water for yeah. another half hour. And then they're going to trot down here to find out that everybody left at six. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, again, what is an emergency response? An emergency response by the city is to flip people's schedules. Everybody should be should um, show up at Still Medical Community Fellowship, which is our emergency hub place oh, at okay. 12 noon and leave at eight or nine o'clock to mm-hmm. give the residents an opportunity, a real shot at accessing our Mm-hmm. Services yeah. Pe- people to show up—that's not their job. That's their manager, supervisor's, director's job to think right. about that. So there's something amiss about the way we're going about preparing ourselves. Another part of emergency response is communicating with residents about potential contamination of floodwaters, and this is a problem in many floods because often the water can look like it's clean, but it's actually contaminated with sewage or other pollutants. Pastor Michael told us a little bit about how the problem or the potential problem of contaminated floodwaters was communicated to the residents of Frederick Avenue. So they give us this form that had been already printed up, but it's mm. got maybe 3,000 words on it. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Small. So it's yeah. telling you everything. I'm All like, things. I'm looking for something that has one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. Right? Bullet Here's points. five things yeah. you should know. And in big letters, because... I couldn't even look at you, read your phone when you're trying to show me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm healthy, right? Yeah. So um, anybody over 45 or 50 is having issues reading small stuff. So I need big letters. I need it to be colorful, maybe even color-coded. This mm-hmm. says clear water is not pure water. Um, use gloves. Um, wait as much as you can for a professional mm-hmm. to at least come and assess. We will be there. So so that people in the immediate aftermath don't overexpose themselves mm-hmm. to contaminated water. Mm-hmm. You got to know that there's some grandmother that is looking down that basement. She goes down there because her, her picture albums are down there from, from 80 years ago and blah, blah, blah. My grandchildren. And she's just because the water ain't really dirty mm-hmm. and she's just going through that stuff and she ain't even got on gloves mm-hmm. how do you not know that yeah. how does her health not be because my question was isn't this a potential health crisis so issues of potentially contaminated water also brought to light additional worries in the community what I know dealing with our residents that here's one couple where the guy ends up taking his wife to the hospital after two or three days because I think she had asthma and she was all of a sudden getting worse. Mm. So what I'm taking from that and other um, 
anecdotal situation is. So somebody now is going to go from a kind of a bronchitis, sinusy kind of environment or condition mm-hmm. to maybe an asthmatic kind of condition. Somebody mm-hmm. with asthmatic kind of condition is going to go to another level, and somebody at the next level is going to go to another level, mm-hmm. and then. Um, now we're going to play around with everybody and because it's now individualized and it's not collective because we didn't uh-huh. make it a health thing. And so now we deal with you individually and there's no accountability or culpability. It's just, oh, you sick. Oh, what about the fact that I don't have any health insurance? Well, mm-hmm. here's how we handle it. Well, but if it's if it's a medical situation, mm-hmm. then we get we have to be dealt with in in totality and you mm-hmm. get help and it doesn't matter whether you have same thing with the housing it doesn't matter because it's a state of emergency Mm -hmm. what if this was more than 135 whatever was homes yeah yeah right and then if you start talking about global warning warming and then what might be the implications of that of an area like this we're in a flood zone right yeah yeah definitely right (laughs) and so and then you know we're we're a harbor city all that kind of stuff we're not if we're not ready for 125 homes we certainly aren't ready for 1000 homes mm-hmm. and we certainly aren't ready for 30,000 homes so pastor michael brought up the really important issue of the intangible damages that can be caused by flooding with an event like this it's really uncommon that researchers are able to go out and actually assess how many people had health impacts that were caused either directly or indirectly as a result of being exposed to floodwaters or being exposed to mold and mildew as a result of having a flooded home or basement. Insurance came up over and over again when we were talking with Pastor Michael about the flood and how people didn't understand the insurance policies that they had and how to actually work with insurance companies and tell them what had actually happened on the ground. So one of the things that came up in this discussion was the importance of interactions with people on the ground. Pastor Michael told us about some of the organizations that are helping in the remediation efforts and how it's important that they were there to talk with people on the ground about some of the insurance things that were happening. Team Rubicon is a group of veterans. It's a national organization. Oh, yeah. And they go around doing this muck out and this initial response and kind of the beginnings of remediation, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is a word that I've said eight thousand percent more in the last <laughs> 10 days than I've ever said in my life. I, I didn't even know how to pronounce I it bet, before yeah. I was right. But anyway, <laughs> so they're involved in all of that. Wonderful, wonderful people. They're veterans, right? They were in, they've been in several homes with this happening, but one particular I can tell, they're in a home, they're talking to the older couple and um, they they either hear them or they're in the casual conversation because they're there all day. Mm-hmm. They understand the response that they've gotten from their insurance company. The insurance company is you know, and I'm not going to say it right, but something to the effect that this is an act of God. This is just rain. This is a flood, oh. blah, 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 blah. You're not covered. Oh, but if you, if it would have been, um, you know, sewage. And again, don't get locked in on the phrase because I'm not going to remember right. But it, that is sewage or, you know, contaminated water related. You would have been. Oh. So these blessed uh, Team Rubicon people. They say, they start talking it through. And one of our guys in my church was involved with this, right? Um, they start talking through. It was like, well, your house. And they said to me, this was one of the worst houses mm. in terms of the stench, mm. right? So just to jump in, what Pastor Michael is referring to here is about that sewer backups and flooding caused by a stream or river out of banks are covered differently by insurance. 
So in this case, many of the houses that were affected by the flooding in the Frederick Avenue area were located in the FEMA 100-year special flood hazard area. That means if the houses had a federally backed mortgage, they were required to purchase flood insurance. But in the Memorial Day weekend flooding event, many people who lived outside of the FEMA 100-year floodplain were also flooded. Um, so these houses may have been covered by a sewer backup insurance policy, but not by a flooding insurance policy. That means that without documentation that there was a sewer backup, they wouldn't have been covered by insurance. So it's also interesting to note that the city of Baltimore is actually one of the few older American cities that has a separate storm sewer system. That means that storm water and wastewater or sewage are supposed to be conveyed in completely separate pipes. But what we've observed in practice is that as sewer systems age, there's often a lot of infiltration between the two sewer systems. So in this case, stormwater was infiltrating or inflowing into the sanitary sewers and causing raw sewage to back up into people's houses. Another persistent issue is the fact that people don't know that they live in a floodplain. And this is very important when you're thinking about insurance um, and where you're actually going to live. Here's a story that Pastor Michael told us about one of the residents in the neighborhood. A healthy number of people did not know, and maybe a few still don't know, that they lived in a floodplain or whatever the proper term is, right? And we talked to a couple that bought their home like, mm, what did they say, three years ago? They were over in Pimlico. They got kind of pushed out of Pimlico. It sounded like eminent domain kind of thing. They were building something, a housing development or something, which is a great thing, right? But they got pushed out. So they're over here. They had their choice of this Frederick Avenue corridor and several other places. They chose this. They wanted this. They had no idea that they they were not allowed the privilege of making an informed decision about this being a flood quarter or flood plain, whichever the right way to say it is. So, and now they've been flooded out. Oh my goodness, again. they were basement and first floor. Another important part of the puzzle here is the idea of a feedback loop. Pastor Michael described to us the importance of having a debrief with the city and other government institutions, and that people from the neighborhood needed to be a part of making the response to emergencies better next time. Um, Again, Pastor Ron, Pastor Dave, and myself, I've really been asking, can we be part of a debriefing? Oh, uh uh-huh. You know, after this, a few months back down. Because what we learned very quickly is that it wasn't fruitful to critique some of this Mm. in the flow. Because civil servants, city workers, um, and and politicians, and all of that, they tend to be kind of sensitive to critiquing and criticism. They're kind of already built up to be defensive a little. Mm -hmm. And so they would give us kind of these long answers as we're talking about some of this. And, you know, so it's like, you know what, let's talk about the next time later. Mm -hmm. So let's just talk to them about what we can do right now. Right. And that kind of thing. But we it's like, please make us a part of the briefing because we want you to have some community response to how we're doing this because we got a stake in this. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to find the boogeyman or the evil politician. You are civil servants. We're the ones that you're supposed to be serving. We're in this together. We just want us to do this better. We think it's extremely important to share these stories, to talk about how people are experiencing flooding on the ground and how we need to change some of the responses, the emergency responses that are happening in our cities. 
If we want to be more resilient, we really need to listen to the voices of people who are actually experiencing these events. We need this to feed back into policy about emergencies. As a citizen, that concerns me because somebody is getting paid every day to think through, strategize through, plan through, and, and make policy for all of this and fund it. So we got residents now. Um, we're going to, what, the faith community and the nonprofit community are going to have to figure out how to raise money to help them get back to restored and whole. And then we're even making decisions if we're going to help people seal their basements and all that, that kind of thing. Oh, we're yeah. not. We're not partnering with city specialists and experts huh. we're not partnering with county or state we're figuring this out i'm being put in touch with people who are experts and and pronounce this stuff who are faith-based who yeah. are volunteer-based but then in terms of what's that word in terms of um potential long-term impact none of these other entities and then in terms of the insurance industry, which please don't ask me any questions about them because they've been involved and we've been advocating for individuals, especially older people, oh, who initially yeah. it's like, well, did you have flood insurance or you have flood insurance, but this um, that's for this. This is something else. You know, this is just yeah. rainwater. It's not oh. sewage related or it's not. There are these very fine tuned phrases and words that you don't understand or not promoted to you when you sign this policy. Mm -hmm. And I've yet to meet in my coming and going an insurance adjuster. Oh. It feels like mm -hmm. everybody's talking to them on the phone. Why wouldn't they have redeployed some of their adjusters to come down here and spend two be or three days, yeah. be on the ground, work even together and, and come up with some response to people because they're making decisions and they're not looking at people's basements. They're not looking at their first floor. The experiences that Pastor Michael shared with us during his interview really highlight some of the limitations of the National Flood Insurance Program, particularly with respect to cities. At the local level, there's a lot of interest in developing engineering projects to mitigate the flood risk in the Frederick Avenue corridor. Our what has been termed rain tax that yeah, people have complained about, tax, right, has been yeah. to make provisions for either widening things like this, doing kind of traps and runoffs, et cetera, to make this kind of thing um, work to, to minimize. If I understand them right, we'll never like not or be able to inoculate against flooding. But can we reduce the amount and, as a result, the impact? That would help. So if yeah. you have a moderate rainstorm, yeah. you wouldn't get a major flood. Yes. But sometimes you'll just get extreme rain, so very, very heavy rain. Yes. And then it gets a little bit trickier yes. to devise ways to keep cities safe when that happens. Which is one of the challenges for Ellicott City, I'm, I'm assuming. It's a challenge for Ellicott City, but it's a challenge for a lot of places in Baltimore in the city that have similar topography. Yeah. And there are actually a lot of similarities between the Frederick Avenue area of Baltimore and the historic downtown of Ellicott City that contributes to their flood risk. So, for example, in both cases, when you consider both Frederick Avenue and historic Main Street of Ellicott City, they both actually overlie a historic stream. In the case of Ellicott City, the buildings actually overhang the stream. In the case of Frederick Avenue, the historic stream has actually been culverted under the street. 
At the same time, they both also are right upstream of a confluence between the stream they overlie and several other tributaries. That makes it more likely for water to back up. Both Ellicott City and the Frederick Avenue corridor of Baltimore are also at the mouth of a pretty steep valley. So that allows water to flow really quickly and to have enough momentum to move cars and rip up the street. There's been an ongoing dialogue about what can possibly be done to make Ellicott City more resilient to this type of flooding. But this type of dialogue between stakeholders in the Frederick Avenue area and practitioners in the city of Baltimore and beyond is just beginning. I've had, there are people on the street, this is how this neighborhood is in terms of its stability. There are people, oh, we've been here 14 years, oh, we've been here 24 years, oh, we've been here 33 years, oh, we've been here 31 years, oh, I've been here 38 years, oh, I've been here 30, you hear 30 a lot. And so they're able to talk about, is it 83 or 84, and there's something else in 70-something, and this trumped all of those in terms of how far up it came and the amount of damage. Um, but those would be the only people who would know, right, who'd be able to talk with authority about um, this end of it and how that has always been. It's almost like secret floods. And this creates a lot of opportunities for future research because it really is a challenge to develop structural solutions to deal with these types of short duration, intense cloudburst type rainstorms that affect the Frederick Avenue corridor and cause flooding. With really extreme rainfall rates, the effectiveness of green infrastructure that relies primarily on infiltration can really be limited because if the rainfall rates exceed the maximum infiltration rates of a soil, even an engineered soil, the remaining water is going to wash off and cause flooding. Storage-based solutions that detain water for a little bit of time and then release it slowly can also be particularly challenging to implement in a city where space is limited. So in addition to the development of structural solutions for this type of flooding, it will also be important to consider non-structural and policy responses. If we were handling this with some degree of judicious, conscientious, care for our citizens here in our city, in our county, in our state. Um, why wouldn't, once we get projections about a certain amount of rain, why wouldn't we be in a system where we would even get some, you know, kind of... A warning. A warning. Oh, yeah. Right? Because some people should have, like, based upon what the overall damage had been in times past, it's like, yeah, you need to get out of there. If you have a basement apartment, leave. Right, right. And even, even the bus is running, you know, and getting stuck yes. on the, you know, yes. that seems like a no yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, our preparedness is minimal and our responsiveness is indeed inadequate. And in the development of both engineering strategies and policy responses to make this part of Baltimore more resilient to flash flooding, it will be critical to think not just about how the stream functions during extreme rain conditions, but also about the amenities and services that it provides for the community during normal conditions. The stream is more than just a hazard. It's also an important resource for the community. We're making this a park. This is our property. Oh. It's 10 acres, um, Still Meadow Peace Park, our, our, our gift from us to our community. There's walking paths that we're establishing. Um, here we have the stream, there's a pond at the end there. 
There's a wall over here of slate that you can that will be a kind of a climbing wall, and then we'll further down there's some um, trees. The way they're laid out, there'll be a uh, a canopy of treehouse. So we're hoping to have it all ready for the by this time next year. So there's water taps and everything. There's a uh, there are beehives, and we have a beekeeper dude and producing honey and all that. And so um, we're sensitive and aware of the, of the property. So this is the the flow of the um, and this is connected to the Patapsco River, right? It's one of the tributary rivers that flows under the air. The time we spent with Pastor Michael was very insightful. I mean, as you can hear from some of the interview that we've shared with you here today. And for me, this really reiterated how important it is for us as researchers to be talking with people on the ground. So some of this actual, you know, firsthand experience of floods and flood aftermath this really needs to be incorporated into the way that we're measuring floods, the way that we're measuring impacts and damage in the aftermath of floods. And I think even very highly technical analysis um, of floods can benefit from an understanding of this direct flood experience. So if you're a researcher, I think it's extremely important to get to know the people in the area that you're studying. I think that people on the ground can point to gaps in your research that you didn't even know you had. In our discussion with Pastor Michael, I think that there were many gaps pointed out to uh, Bernice and myself, and also a reiteration of some of the gaps that we suspected existed, but we weren't sure. And so this was very useful uh, for us to get a better feeling of what was happening on the ground. For myself as a researcher, I'm always thinking about how we can change policy to better help places like Frederick Avenue become more resilient to flooding. And one of the ways um, that this can be done is really by amplifying the voices of people on the ground, which was really one of the goals of this podcast. So we hope that you gained some insight by listening to our podcast here today. We hope that it was interesting to listen to the experience of flooding from the perspective of those that work in the service of their community in Baltimore. I think this also helps us remember that each flooding event is unique because the people and the communities that are being flooded um, are unique themselves. And so we need to learn from all of these different experiences and people on the ground if we want our cities to become more resilient to flooding in the future. And this concept applies more broadly than just the Frederick Avenue part of Baltimore and the issue of flooding and extends for the entire city of Baltimore itself. Right now, Baltimore is really on the verge of an important transition. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Baltimore has a lot of vacant lots and abandoned properties. And over the next few years, a lot of decisions will have to be made about how those vacant spaces and properties are redeveloped, especially in light of the need to make the city more resilient to extreme events. But it's really important to keep in mind Baltimore's long history of making these types of planning decisions without hearing the voices of its residents and without involving community stakeholders. At the best case, that led to a lot of misinformed but well-intentioned decisions. In the worst case, it left those communities subject to decisions that were based primarily on racism. And a lot of research has shown that those historic top-down decisions that didn't involve the voices and the input and the knowledge of the local community contribute to the social problems in Baltimore that persist today. Thank you again for joining us for this first City Dispatch episode of the Future Cities podcast. 
The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. <laughs>